Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, this is Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Thank you for listening today to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. And um, hello, Gabby. How are you doing, Gabby? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. It's, um, it's a bit hot here, I must say. Um, it's it's a bit of a paradox coming from uh, an Iraqi talking about heat here in the UK, which which barely hits thirty. But hey, um, I guess uh, we change our skin, don't we? Sort of leopards do change their skins. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's a bit odd hearing anyone in London saying it's hot. To be honest. <laughs> yeah, we've had we've had an amazing heat wave here, and um, I was I was reading an article by. Um, uh, a friend of mine. He's a um, he's a he has a doctorate in geopolitics and um, economics, and he talks about how the changing climate is real, and it's due, you know due to um, changes in our civilization rather than anything else that civilization has changed, and that since the um, the uh, industrial era, the Earth has heated up by one degree. One degree. Only one degree. I was going to say, is that significant? I wouldn't have thought that was significant. Well, it's apparently super significant. And really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, the sort of catastrophic changes on Earth would happen. That means no one would live on this Earth if it reaches up to eight degrees above. Um, well, actually seven degrees now because we've gone up by one degree. So, um, and he talks about how, you know, there's going to be a crisis of civilization. I, I mean, his his views are quite extreme and a bit depressing. Um, <laughs> but he has written some amazing books, uh, one on 7-7, the 7-7 terrorist attack in London. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, he's, he's an amazing... Um, <clears throat> investigative journalist so he's 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 got some real real gems of of knowledge and he wrote a book on um, the 9-11 uh, attacks and he was summoned by the um, the US uh, Congress to give a, um, a statement and for them to pick his brains um, Dr. Ahmed Nafiz Ahmed his name is uh, from Bangladeshi descent uh, origin. Cool. So, um, really interested about your 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 journey into management and into leadership and into coaching. Um, when did that all start? I suppose it really started when I was working in the corporate space. So I actually graduated uni with uh, qualifications in accounting. Mm. And um, uh, so went into the corporate world as as an accountant, mm. and you know for many years 
did accounting, ended up as a financial controller. But what was really fascinating for me, I guess, always having been someone who was fascinated in life and people, was even from when I graduated and I, um, you know, was in an organisation, I was always just fascinated at people. And mm. I got this almost unhealthy obsession, really, with management mm. and with decision-making and with just how different people are when they kind of walk through that corporate door. Mm. So it was really just quite an interesting journey. I, you know, went on to financial controller and executive levels in finance and was always very successful. Yet I, with that success, came a lot of conflict mm. with, with those around me, especially the peers. And, you know, it's only with hindsight you can look at what was going on. And I think, you know, for me, one of the things was it was always a journey about how do you stay being yourself? How do you stay centred? How do you stay real? So mm. I just had a way of working with my team that was real. And it was about supporting them and developing them. Um, and eventually that skill or that focus was uh, recognised by the consulting industry. And I was uh, headhunted into um, a software company. Uh, mm. And then ultimately another another big company where my role really became one initially of building bridges between different uh, companies and different skills. So with the IT company, my role was basically to build a bridge between the techies who were building software and the companies who were wanting software so we could get greater success. Because inevitably, they just, you know, were talking different languages and also there's lots of politics that goes on in organisations that, you know, drives different results. So I then spent a lot of time working with lots of companies in that space of sort of being that go-between person. And again, uh, you know, observing fascinating behaviours, <laughs> wow. you know, employees and managers and all those, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, but I went on and did roles as a project manager, project director, really started specialising in troubleshooting uh, failing projects. And again, I think it was because I could just put a different lens on things that was ha was, were happening. But through all of that, again, a big part of my focus was always how do you bring people on that journey with you? How do you really uh, you know, develop people? Um, how do you build great team environments to get outcomes that you need, whether you're in, you know, disastrous emergency situations, uh, mm. you know, or just normal day-to-day, -day, um, you know, day-to-day -day work situations. So I was kind of fortunate that in that those consulting roles and project management roles that I worked with probably hundreds of companies and clients, and you just get to see over and over again different dynamics. Mm. And I think what became... Um, one of my real sort of turning points in this was that the older I got and the more companies I worked with, the same, I just kept seeing the same thing. <laughs> you know, and I guess I was always just became more and more fascinated. And I don't think a lot of being a great manager or leader is rocket science, yet there is something about it that clearly is rocket science. <laughs> yep. okay. Hmm. So eventually, in 2000, I actually left the corporate world after doing a, a pretty major project where we had to build and sell a company, which brought with it lots of um, amazing people challenges again. Um, 
but when I left the corporate world, I decided that what I really wanted to do was to take all of that now and work with, you know, managers um, from really entrepreneurs uh, all the way through to multinationals in really working at how do we create better team environments? How do we create better outcomes? Um, so just really working in that space with organisations. And for me, the journey became about how do I continue to, I guess, lead my life and mm. my professional career in a way that I just keep enjoying what I'm doing and working in the space that I enjoy and really feel like I can contribute to and make a difference. And every time I try and veer out of the leadership and management space, something brings me back into it. It's so it's just something that I'm really drawn to. I'm passionate about it. I think one of the biggest ways we can make a difference in the world at the moment is in how we run organisations. Mm. Mm. Um, and I think the quality on average of leadership and management education is, is quite appalling. And a lot of it is stuck still in the Industrial Revolution. Wow, you know, it's level. sort of that old. Mm. Yeah, well, a lot of our management theory today actually came out of the, came out of the Industrial Revolution. Wow. So... It's, it is quite interesting when you start tracking it back. And a lot of those things we're still using today. They're the basis of, of what's taught in management. Could you give examples of that? Yeah, sure. So if you think about it, what happened in the um, Industrial Revolution was that before that, everything was kind of done in villages and you had more of an agricultural society, you know, and smaller villages. Mm. The Industrial Revolution all of a sudden brought with it uh, an environment where you were employing lots of people and they were doing work such as, you know, factory work or mining, those sorts of things. So all of a sudden, their managers, uh, if you like, who um, would, would have been before running, you know, a farm or mm. a market or something like that, were now brought into these businesses to create outcomes for business people. And the Industrial Revolution was the first time that we saw people owning companies mm. who weren't running at the companies, if you like. Right. Whereas right. before that, it was all the same. So we, we have this scenario where you now had a manager coming in to run a company, but it wasn't their company. And mm. they had to deliver results for this person out here who was basically an investor mm. and, you know, wanted their uh, return on their investment. So this is where things started coming together, such as, you know, the uh, the concept of KPIs, of performance of how many widgets needed mm. to be, uh, you know, produced from a factory line, of the concept of hierarchies. In When we talk about organisational hierarchies, the original hierarchy had a foreman mm. who was sitting on a production line, uh, you know, observing the 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 products as they went through so this is where the original concept of hierarchy still came straight out of the uh, out of the industrial revolution mm. um, you know the all of the body of knowledge to do sort of with with KPIs um, with generating results still has a lot of that industrial revolution and factory based widget level thinking in it mm. so. What actually happened is as more and more of uh, businesses were run, eventually management theory was developed, but it was developed by looking back 
at the Industrial Revolution and what happened because when the Industrial Revolution kicked off, there was no body of knowledge called management. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. So it was only by looking back at the Industrial Revolution of management theory and management history, um, like Taylorism, um, where they developed this body of knowledge mm. by looking back at what happened in the Industrial Revolution. And it, but it was all focused about producing outputs. Yeah. It was about yeah. productivity. It was about efficiency. It was about you know return on the level of investment and infrastructure that was in place. Mm. Mm. And that, there's never been at the moment, a time in history, if you like, where that body of knowledge has ever been revised, per se. Right. Because it all, it all came out in there. So if you were really going to revise the body of knowledge of management, you sort of would have to go, I'm going to put that on a shelf over there and let's really brainstorm and think about what are organisations today, what does it mean, you know, to run an organisation. Hmm. So that body of knowledge sat there. What you'll see if you look at history is then the body of knowledge about leadership came out. So what actually happened is as, uh, you know, people were basically being burnt out as they still are today in mm. organisations, psychology sort of started getting involved and like one of the first things we saw was Maslow's hierarchy of needs where he started uh, understanding that it's not just about the widgets and the manufacturing but there are people involved here mm. and we need to treat them as people and diff people are different people are motivated differently mm. so we sort of had management theory sitting over here now we had psychology and what ultimately became leadership theory coming in next to management mm. so anything to do with leadership basically became about um dealing with people it became about you you know you as a leader it became about teams that sort of sat here but the body of knowledge of management you know about command control production return on investment achieving outcomes sat quite separately to it mm -hmm. even today if you look at anything people write uh, in in your basic management education there will still be a line for draw, drawn between management and leadership but two different concepts and that all the different bits of leadership are to do with people and all the sort of generally thought of um, body of knowledge of management is to do with that just achieving results. So, uh, and so there's a lot more to that, with, uh, you know, lots of different theories and things, um, different pieces of knowledge within that. But... So, yeah, the work we've done today, that body of knowledge of management, is still a direct line from the Industrial Revolution. Mm. We now talk about leadership. We have all these fads coming in in leadership and, and people management, but we're failing to put the two together to create a new body of knowledge. Okay. So, so we haven't got from, there yet, or are we in the process of working towards it, generally speaking? I, I'm not seeing a lot of it because we're still... You'll find that 80% of teaching out there still separates leadership from management. Mm. Now what's actually happened is there is a much greater uh, emphasis on leadership education than management education, mm. which is, you know, all about you, how you show up, and about teams. 
But now, but now what we've got is a divide. We're either talking about you and leadership and people, or we're talking about management and KPIs and efficiencies and, you know, the stripping of, of resources to get a return. Whereas, if you asked me, what does a new body of knowledge look like? I'd say we can no longer separate leadership from management. Mm-hmm. If you're stepping into a role to manage any aspect of an organization, the only way you achieve outcomes is through people. Mm-hmm. So we need to bring these two bodies of knowledge together. So as someone running an aspect of an organization, you should not only learn about what it means to maximize the energy of a team towards outcomes, you should be learning about what is a business, what outcomes need mm. to be achieved to make business sustainable, and then revise, if you like, that whole integration so that we stop what we've got, which is really still very, in, in most organizations, something that says the longer you work, you know, the the more you're respected, we're mm. still churning out the you know shareholder return. We are trying to you know strip mine if you like our human resources in mm. order to produce financial returns. Mm. Mm. Um, and we we separate like this business knowledge over here, management and leadership. So for me. It is about integrating those all back into one space and doing very integrated management slash leadership education. I'd love to find another word that wasn't management or leadership, uh, you know. <laughs> I mean, the word that sort of came to my mind is coaching. Can coaching bring the two together? Coaching can bring the, the two together in that if we look at really what is a very current um, and future-oriented management skill, it is without doubt the skill of coaching. Mm. The only thing that I would say that needs to be brought into that, though, is a level of awareness around business acumen. Mm. Because if we're going to create great work environments and sustainable organisations, we have to understand what that means at a business level. Mm-hmm. So if you're just coaching someone to build up their knowledge of, uh, you know, people and and how to create a great team environment, that's fabulous. But you couldn't send a company broke in doing that. Mm. So how do we integrate the two so that we get um, a much more balanced approach between the two? That we do create, you know, energized and engaging organizations that also achieve great results, but not results that strip mine our human resources Mm. and Mm. the other way around where we get this incredibly entitled workforce you know who thinks that organizations owe them a living Mm. so you know there needs to be this balance and i just think without that level of integration of knowledge we're never going to take the quantum leap that we need to take in order to really get organizations to that that next level um yeah i mean Definitely. I mean, training as a doctor, I think I barely got any training whatsoever in business whatsoever in the whole of medical school. Um, I mean, I learned some business in, in, in high school, but, uh, you know, the rest is all self, self-taught. And um, I think it would be, I mean, the question is, can doctors be business 
owners and runners is it sort of is it in keeping with the uh, altruistic and the uh, people pleasing or people loving personality does it go hand in hand well i think it can go hand in hand mm. and in fact i think the world would be a better place if it mm. went hand in better because I certainly know, uh, you know, from a lot of the organisations I've worked with in the, the health area that, um, you know, a lot of them are so focused just on the bottom line mm. um, because they are owned by external investors and or businessmen um, or women um, and or, you know, for that matter, the government or their public companies that um, the focus that business management, if you like, is happening by someone else who doesn't have those qualities. Mm. So maybe if we could create a breed of entrepreneurial uh, doctors, uh, you know, or medical professionals who mm. were taught more about business and management, that mm. we can create organisations that don't just have a good financial outcome, they have a, a great human outcome as well mm, mm. you know and, and and within that I think the quality of caring the quality of what's important to them in life you know could well open some different models as to even what do the financials look like in that what does a good return mean you know how can you make money and provide affordable health care mm. you know that takes really a lot of people with a lot of passion and intelligence and, and business acumen to throw around ideas until, you know, that next level of thought. Mm. Uh, I mean, it sounds really exciting and it sounds something that um, a lot of people will be really, really interested to, to um, take forward, I think. You know, having that, um, as you said, that leadership spirit, the, the business acumen and knowledge uh, and and sort of integrating the whole thing um, it, it it takes more people to sort of talk about this and as you said to discuss it a lot more I mean do you, do you think this is, this is happening at the moment or is it still in, in the infancy stage uh, if you're talking specifically in the uh, the medical field mm. um, and health, I don't know that I've seen mm. a lot of at all there's a lot of like uh, education out there hammering entrepreneurs mm. but they're really more the the business focused uh, entrepreneurs not with a necessarily a specific within a specific industry so mm. I don't see anything that sort of says um, you know here's a program let's get a bunch of doctors or, or mm. medical professionals together and let's let's learn as an industry mm. about business acumen about management about leadership and and let's start creating some of our own models and yeah. concepts there is a group in um in the uk called doctorpreneurs and nice. yeah so there's a group um they've been around for for over five years i went to one of their events about three years ago and i think um celebrating business I think that's something that doctors uh, had difficulty in, in acknowledging. Even the, the entrepreneurs mm. there, who are all doctors, 
investors and um, angel investors and sort of all the latest buzzwords that they use to describe themselves there is still that kind of mm, yes you know they feel a bit reluctant or ashamed to sort of admit that yeah they love business and I think if more mm. doctors were uh, exposed to business um, the process of business the uh, the naming or the nomenclature of, of business and, and just bring them together and saying that actually it, it can work together they're not mutually exclusive you know they're not one against the other and you know the more that we can bring them together the more likely we are to, to have a new system because we know that the current system in the NHS and sort of um, you know the the rest of the developed world health system is is a broken system. Yeah, you know because it celebrates much. more to one side than the other, whichever one is um, winning. And you know it's that balance between rights and responsibilities, and oh. it sort of shifts more to one side than the other. Um, whereas sort of finding, I mean, I'm not a fan of balance. I've 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 said that to many many people. You know, I I don't think you can find balance, but you can find what I call a physiological wave. And so you go up, up and down, but within function and within um, a sort of a, a productive existence. Um, and that's where people come in dealing with people in teams, and that's where the actual landscape of where you're working in helps as well which is in terms of business but i'm i'm, I'm just interested so uh, a, a a person who's interested in people and yet does accounting i mean how does how does that work <laughs> <laughs> well i think that that's the 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 beauty of my background in finance has been that as i've moved more and more into the field of management and leadership and you know working in that space that you you can realize that this that basic understanding of finance and business adds a lot of value mm, to mm. how you work with teams and managers and and it's obviously really obvious for me because of my background but I reckon 80% of managers wouldn't know how to read a financial statement a balance sheet or a profit and loss lots of them you know hardly even do budgets mm. and it's not that it's about that but it but it is about acknowledging that if you are in a business, if you walk through a door that is a business, at the end of the day, there are a set of financials that have to underpin and fund and run, make money to survive. Mm. So I think you owe it to learn about, uh, you know, at least the basics of finance and accounting if you want to call yourself a manager. Now, I know, it, you know, I get a lot of flack about those sorts of opinions, but I just think if you are in there you know, running teams and spending organisational resources, hmm. uh, you know, that that you owe it to yourself and to the business to understand it. So for me, it's actually been a really accidental hmm. and powerful and useful piece of the integration of, uh, you know, everything that I do. I don't practice as an accountant anymore. I have an accountant, but um, obviously that knowledge just continues to be incredibly valuable every day and every program I do you know it um, it's just such a, a valuable you know base set of knowledge and you know with the current problems that we have um, in terms of doctors burning out and sort of uh, the lack of well-being amongst uh, a lot of doctors um, do you think that would help them 
in learning about the organization, the business side of things, where they fit in, or is it something that's um, uh, more of a deeper problem? Uh, yeah, I think that that problem can be dissected on many, many levels. Um, I think it, if you want to talk about just that as a as a potential aspect, mm. you know, or component of it, um, I suppose I've got a couple of views on it from a few different perspectives. One is I um, did some work a few years ago with one of the um, government health bodies here in Australia. And uh, the program was a program for clinicians, and it was a clinician's business development program. Mm. And as part of it, what we did was we taught several cohorts of senior clinicians um, about business. Mm. We including educating them on the incredible complex set of um, accounting and finance processes and funding used by the government. Mm. Um, incredibly complex. But the intention wasn't that they became experts at the funding. The intention was that in being aware of it, they could put a different lens on how they were being managed and why they were being driven to do certain things. Mm. doesn't justify it by, by any means as far as whether the system of funding is good, bad or otherwise. But once you understand it, you are more empowered to make decisions and push back at a management or you know executive or board level to put forward different proposals. Mm you have a better level of understanding um, you know about what's going on and I have to admit that that program and that education did make a lot of difference to those clinicians in how empowered they felt mm. to the changes that they made within their divisions their departments their wards mm. um, to improve it for both patients and for the employees um, so I think that is a very positive aspect mm, of, mm. of that, you know, just from a kind of a psyche building, a psyche perspective. But how early so do we go? I mean, uh, is it just senior clinicians or do you think medical students and um, junior doctors should be involved in that process as well? I think, I suppose because, um, because doctors have I guess such a choice of careers you can go into the public system or a private mm. system um, actually I just want to track this back a bit and say something first I think first of all from what I'm aware of the education of doctors and the way that education is carried out is so full on and so demanding mm. and everything else that the way it is currently structured, I do not think there is the time or that a anyone would have the headspace to learn about business at the same time as learning about becoming a doctor. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think that first needs to be put on the table, that even if it's a good idea, there would need to be radical and systemic change oh. as to how we educate doctors because we, we at the moment we could not put anything else on them that would be just shocking however given <laughs> if there was an uh, ability to do that 
and create sufficient headspace and a stream within that education process that possibly did teach them some basics, even if, you know, um, it was the basics of maybe at the time how the public health system is funded. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it will give them a different lens to understand why they're being asked to do things, why, you know, you're triaging patients and only focusing on some for a certain time, why there might be pressure to get patients out of a hospital and look at in-home care um, because of what it does, you know, to the financials of a hospital. With that lens, they may find it easier to exist within that system knowing why some of those decisions are made and therefore may not take on the personal burden that goes with being a professional where you predominantly care about people Mm. and you want to spend the time with them that you feel you need to, you know, to create the best outcome possible. But behind you, you've got a set of executive and managers, you know, making what appear to be random and very selfish uh, decisions. Um, So with that lens, A, you may not take it so personally, so maybe it won't take such a, a, you know, an emotional toll on you. Mm -hmm. But secondly, you may be able to look at what you're doing through a different lens and suggest improvements to those management Mm -hmm. that maybe don't think of because I know a lot of them um, haven't, uh, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, clinicians or doctors, a lot of the um, executive in a lot of cases. But, you know, it could well equip them to, to better make a difference to the system if they understood more about how it was run. Mm. But, mm. but I'd be so reluctant to put any more pressure on them as far as... Uh, it is know. very heavy. It is very heavy. But, you know, the... Knowledge has changed now. Dissemination of knowledge has changed now. Um, the way people um, process knowledge is totally different. So I think there does need to be a radical change, a continuous radical change in terms of medical education for sure. Um, it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, in, in in terms of more junior doctors involved in management, I think it's essential because managers do want to know what's going on on the front line do want to go do want to know what the troops are doing and sort of what's happening there Um, because there are many things that senior doctors do not realize and do not see happening on the front line and it's like in any business isn't it you know you do Mm. want the input from from the uh, customer assistant and the person that's taking the calls yeah yeah very much so and, and like, I found it quite fascinating when we were working with these senior clinicians, the value they added to that organisation, you know, the, the program went over three months and they actually had to identify a business improvement project as a result of the knowledge they gained on the program. And it was monumental, the mm. improvements that were made, um, you know, to, to the organisation as a result simply of that a level of knowledge that they normally wouldn't have had. Mm-hmm. And because they learned how to speak that language too, if you like, that language of business, they were much better able to put forward ideas that a lot of them have been trying to put up for ages, but mm. they just weren't using the right language. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's a sort of language, because once you speak to a manager in their language, it sort of yeah. 
they sort of sit up and think well actually this guy or, or, or this girl knows exactly what they're talking about and and you can nail it um, time is the issue of course um, but then uh, I'm sure new roles will be created you know where previously doctors used to do those roles there'll be a lot more technicians doing it instead and and it's it's um, marrying it all together yeah that's interesting um, I mean the role of management in the NHS that's a big one and um, I've, have, have you worked with the NHS before I haven't worked with the NHS but with uh, the system over here, we have taken a lot from the NHS. Mm, mm. So I was on those programs with Health Here. Um, we actually had some presenters from the NHS who were presenting on, you know, what had been going on over there. What What, what do you think of them as as managers? Um, I uh, I suppose I couldn't comment on them personally as managers because I never worked for them. My observation of what we were looking at from the NHS, which was a lot to do with the changes in how hospitals were funded and, you know, those sorts of things. I just found it, I mean, I've got an accounting background and I found it incredibly complex. Mm. And it, look, it, it could well be very smart, but I just got the feeling that sometimes I think we just try to get too complex and too clever. Mm. And you know, as we break things down more and more and make them more complex, are we really adding value to the system? Does it really make that much difference? Mm. Uh, so what I found was, I guess, a lot of intelligent people sharing a lot of information and data and um, different ways of analysing that data to fund activity in hospitals. Um so, yeah, for me, it, it, that's what it was. It was a lot of data, a lot of what seemed to be a lot of intelligent debate, a lot of complexity. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, so I have actually worked with managers, I don't know, but but that's uh, sort of the aspect of it that I got to see. Yep, yep. And and is it is it sort of similar to sort of big corporations? It gets very complicated and... Look, um, big corporate accounting is complex but to be honest I don't think it's anywhere near as complex as the sort of funding arrangements within wow. some of the public hospital system. I mean the activity based funding and everything is uh, yeah in incredibly complex wow. um, and yeah I'd say more than your, your standard corporate. Um, the thing that comes to my mind always working for a corporate is that you kind of lose your 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 true identity. Mm. How how true was that for you when you're working in the corporate sector? Um, well, it was actually incredibly true. But the interesting thing here is, I didn't realise it was happening. Mm. What I mean, I I can say this now because obviously I've observed it at quite a different level, but. As I stayed in the corporate world, I really did become it, hmm. including but not being aware of how much you are in there playing the politics, including not even realising how stressed you are and how burnt out you are because it happens so gradually over time that hmm. it's the norm. It's just normal. And 
it wasn't actually until I'd finished that uh, last major project of building that company when I decided to take three months off. At the end of three months, I felt so different to what I when I walked out three months ago. So different, in fact, it it genuinely scared me, and I I really was beginning to enjoy who I was again and got back you know to the essence of me and then the more I observed that corporate world and the people I of course knew who were still in it which was you know most of the people um, you know I had worked with and lots of close friends in that space um, once you're out of it it's very easy to observe and that was really a big catalyst for me of saying well from now on I I'm going to look at working with people and organisations and teams to see how we can really improve management, you know, leadership and organisational outcomes. Mm. Um, and I never went back into the corporate world. And that was never the intention when I took the break. Yeah. But I mean, you took the break because you needed the break out of, out of doing all that work, yeah. So, yeah. You, you do get lost in it and I think the scary thing is that you don't realise you do and that the, the the long hours, you know, the stress, the politics becomes the norm. Mm -hmm. you know? So y your benchmarks are all lost because everyone's going down the same rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so, some people are not uh, as lucky as you, you know, it's sort of, they keep going until something breaks and shatters and left with nothing um, there's there's no more pieces to pick up anymore um, mm. uh, yes I, I can understand that because you don't even at, at some level I don't believe you even know you're doing it yeah yeah it, it really just does become you and yeah. and because your benchmarks are around you and they are no different you, you don't even have that kind of glaring in your face. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Right? What yeah. are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've lost my train of thought, but I wanted to speak to you. Well, I can't remember now. Um, <laughs> something about people. Anyway, so coaching is an interesting thing. Coaching is, is sort of becoming a bit of a buzzword at the moment. And um, oh, oh, bit, bit, before going to coaching, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you, you said there are the sort of a lot of similarities of, of um, good teams and, and sort of bad teams that keep popping up, and it becomes quite common. So, could, could you give us examples of what makes good teams and what examples of what makes bad teams? Um, so, I guess it's easiest to start with the. If you're often when you're asked to do work with companies, it kind of all starts from the same point, and it generally is, you know, my team's not performing, or my team, you know, needs to perform better. Mm -hmm. um, um, and inevitably, what you're looking at is uh, politics. Mm -hmm. You're looking at um, not achieving good results, you know. Uh, for the organisation, you're looking at a general kind of lack of engagement, lack of rapport, you know, mm. poor culture, top, yeah, a lot of, uh, you know, toxic cultures um, where 
management and staff are just at loggerheads. Mm. Uh, you know, teams that aren't cohesive. Um, but the sad commonality within all of this, when I look at it, is that when I look at a poor performing team, my first uh, protocol is not really to want to go in and address the poor performers within the team. Management and leadership have a massive impact on organisations and culture and the energy of an organization so for me i would I, I tend to go in and ask lots of questions but start with what is happening from a management perspective around the team and then once we know we've got good kind of systems and processes and and a manager who's functioning well then we can really start looking at you know where are the bad eggs and how do we how do we deal with them because you can go in and go, let's do some team building and let's fix the team. But if the environment around that team isn't sound, mm. and it's never going to be sustainable. So, you know, looking at sitting down and looking at the team environment, you know, is there a vision for the team? Do they know where they're headed? Um, how, are they clear on what their roles are, where they fit in to the organisation, how their role contributes to the organisation? Has the manager got good processes in place where they're regularly sitting down with their team members and having a conversation about how the week's gone, what's been achieved, what hasn't, what could be improved, you know, rather than this concept of let's do performance management every 12 months. No, you should be doing it, you know, every day, every week. And that, this is where that, that concept of coaching really comes in because... I think the concept of performance management is such an old one. We need to replace it with something which is much more a great conversations, great questions, sitting down regularly. Um, so one of the big problems really with team environments is actually our management capability and skills in how to really take a group of people and have them energised and engaged in the pursuit of goals and outcomes. But if we go back to the previous conversation, I believe part of the reason we have such so many issues with management and managers is because our management education isn't integrated. Mm. So you might go off and do a leadership course. And you might study Gandhi and talk about presence and, and charisma and authentic leadership. And that's fabulous, you know, to have a vision. But it's, it's just, it's not enough in an organisational context just to be a leader and, and have a vision. You've got to have the management skills that then translate that into really how you drive a, a team to achieve results, how you do give feedback you know, how you are contributing to the business environment, um, you know, to the vision of the organisation, the strategies and the goals of the organisation. Um, so the, the commonality hmm. is the, the observation of, you know, poor performing uh, teams, people who really aren't motivated or engaged, um, uh, either too much conflict or not enough conflict in a team, as in, 
most of the time what you'll find is team members will just say yes because there's no point giving feedback to management. So you end up with this really sort of bad culture mm. going on, you know, in teams. Um, but as I say, I think you've got to take a step back from that first and really look at the skills and capabilities of the managers and uh, and support them in creating a really nice integrated skill set so that they can really contribute to creating a great team and then cascade that down and start working with the team and you can do some you know great stuff to do with, with teamwork and teaching a whole lot of different skills at the team level. Uh, so something that popped into my head just now is sort of job swapping. Uh, so yeah. managers swapping jobs with, with doctors and sort of looking at their roles and, and the way that they do their job and doctors swapping with managers and, uh, yeah. and sort of in, encapsulating their work experience and the way that they deal with 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 their work life and um, you know managing people um, and as you said it's sort of essentially understanding and more knowledge and understanding and just being aware that there are these different roles and sometimes we've got to encapsulate those other roles within us to be better you know better workers within an organization um, what what got you started in coaching because you sort of you, you you do a lot of coaching now what what was the sort of starting point for that so for me the coaching actually came out of the uh, education and training side of things in that if I'm working with you it's one thing for you to do a day's training uh, you know or to do a course but Inevitably, skills transfer and development has to happen over time. Mm. So coaching is really a, a kind of an, an essential skill that helps with skills transfer by continuing to connect, to look at, you know, how are you going, where have your challenges been, what's working, what's not, taking the next step, and then, you know, continuing along that journey. So... It started very much from the space of L&D and skills transfer. And then the more work that I did within the coaching space, the more relevant you realise that that skill and that capability is with everything. As I say, it's, you know, it's the core of really management. I think if we taught more managers the skills of coaching, we could really transform how we do performance management and how we get better teams and better communication, you know, um, within our teams. And then from there, purely because of the work I was doing, I got involved with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of life coaches, health coaches, every other sort of coaches. And and the more you realise that it's just such a, a, a universal skill. And I think, um, you know, it's one of the skills we should be teaching anyone who steps up into any sort of supervisory or or management yeah. uh, capability. Mm, mm. Uh, also, a of, um, uh, psychologists actually recently who are using much more of a coaching approach too, when they, uh, you know, work with some of their uh, some of their clients. Mm. So that's quite interesting. And sort of in in your view, Gabby, what what makes a good coach? I think um, well, well, the first thing is it depends on which field 
the coach is in makes a difference as to what makes a good coach. So if you were looking at someone, say, in the life coaching field, mm. then for me personally, and a lot of people wouldn't agree with this, I would prefer to have, see someone who's probably older with more experience mm. and, you know, is a very good listener mm. and is uh, very good at the art of coaching, you know, the art, art of really asking fabulous questions mm. um, and getting below the skin, um, you know, to take someone forward. If you're looking at coaches in specific areas, so let's say with a lot of the stuff I do, executive coaching, management coaching, leadership coaching, then you want someone who in, I believe, is well, has experience in that space mm. and has a wealth of knowledge in that space. Um, because I believe where you're doing coaching with a subject context, you are probably much more looking at a model which isn't pure coaching. It's a bit of coaching. It's a bit of mentoring. It's a bit of education. Mm. You know, whereas life coaching can be more that pure coaching. Um, so if you are, yeah, looking at engaging an executive coach, a management coach, uh, you know, a business coach, a health coach, a wellness coach, I think you would want someone who has got some good skill and experience in that space as well as the knowledge, you know, uh, of coaching. Mm -hmm. and, and, and who's the best coach that you've had? Who's the best coach that I've had? For me, it's probably been one of my um, my managers, actually, when I was in, in the corporate space very, very early on. I, I didn't know it at the time that that's what he was doing. <laughs> It's interesting. I only realised that in hindsight. And they say that, all the latest research says that when you look at your through your career, most people are lucky to say that they've had one manager, at the most two, who has really made a massive impact on their life. Mm. And and for me, I've had one, and it was him. But now I realise why. <laughs> why? Why? Why was he a good uh, coach? Because he very much took that coaching approach. He made me own what I was doing. He challenged uh, he, he, my decisions. He didn't tell me what to do or, or direct me, but he challenged, he, he questioned. He, he made me be the best version of me I could be mm. um, because he, he didn't let me settle for, uh, you know, taking the easy road mm. or... Uh, you know, always just saying yes, yeah. So having that good a... challenge, yeah, it's it's mm. interesting, isn't it? I mean, I remember my um, my first life coach. Uh, I won't mention his name here, um, but yeah, it it was tough. I didn't like it because I was yeah, constantly yeah. being, you know, questioned and and rarely have I, you know, been questioned that much by another person. It was really annoying, actually. I was really annoyed. You know, but looking bizarre. back, but but looking <laughs> back, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me in my life. And 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 I say that now because, you know, the self confidence, the self esteem, um, just looking within and looking at all the the dark as well as the light areas in you know within you just yep. makes you much more aware of who you truly are and you know being in a system where you know you have to fit into this box and that's all you've got you know you sort of just get complacent and well you get burnt out don't you 
But, but that's exactly right. You know, that, that person who's asking those tough questions and, and getting you to look in spaces you wouldn't look in naturally yourself, uh, you know, and that they've got the confidence to hold that space for you to do that, I think is, is incredibly powerful, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, yeah, there should be more of it. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, when you look at the, what is happening at the moment, you know, with with doctors and I think physicians in general globally. I mean, I've been staggered at the statistics around things such as uh, suicides of doctors and mm. and the mental health and and around the world. Um, mm. You know, I thought it was isolated, but it's not. It's Australia. It's the U.S. It's the U.K. It's it's appalling, and you know, there are so many contributing factors to it, but. You know, it could be an interesting um, experiment to see what would happen if you took a bunch of doctors and for their life as a doctor, they had a had a life coach mm. appointed to them. Mm. You know, could that break some of the um, the systemic thinking, mm. um, build the them up better internally? You know, they've also got someone to speak to. Mm. It would be an interesting um, experiment to try. Well, I mean, it changed my life totally. Mm. It really did. It sort of shook me to the core. And, you know, I even changed my beliefs and (laughs) all all these other cultural things. Uh, and, and, And that had massive consequences for me, you know, in terms of my relationship, my... um my ethnic community, my um, siblings as well, and it was a very, very difficult time for me. And um, but you know, in in hindsight, it was still the best thing I ever did. Mm. And um, yes, I mean, you, you read my mind because I was going to ask you. You know, do you think coaching and life coaching has a role? in today's doctor and you sort of pretty much answered that question uh, an, an astounding yes and I and I, I gather you're, you're working with a um, an American medical school about this yeah that's right it's um, you know it's just fabulous to see that there is a medical school um, this one being the Boston uh, School of Medicine and for their interns, they actually appoint coaches uh, for their interns. And the, the coaching is a, a balance across their, their skill development. Mm. So it is about their capability development. It's about supporting them through their exams, through their residency, through you know building the relationships they need to, through observing themselves, as well as the reflection on themselves and their lives mm. to, to try and help keep everything in balance because of obviously the issues that we know um, that exist there you know with interns um, uh, in general as far as the pressure and the long hours and the lack of sleep and you know it's just so much on them so you know I think that's a a fabulous initiative Um, and it would be yeah really interesting to see that concept be it with interns or but even more as doctors go out into the world um, you know, to to have coaches available 
to them. I was reading, I don't know if it's true over there, but I was reading something recently that here in Australia there's uh, mandatory reporting laws and that so if a doctor actually goes and discusses, I assume it's with a, a licensed professional such as a psychologist, if that psychologist thinks that the doctor, you know, may have issues in performing their duties and or um, uh, be detrimental to the public, then they have mandatory reporting, which is fabulous. I can understand why that is. But what an incredible deterrent mm. for, um, for, for doctors to seek support. Mm. Um, we have such systemic issues around this mm. uh, yep. as far as supporting, you know, uh, our doctors and our clinical professionals. A, a coach, you know, might be an option to fill a space where they've, you know, it, it really does, uh, can, you know, really add value that they can go to safely, that they can see consistently. There's a big um, mining company here in Australia who just tried a uh, experiment, a pilot, and what they did was they uh, simply made life coaches or coaches in general available to any of their staff mm. should they choose to honor all they had to do was put up their hand mm. so they typically had what is called an eas or an employee assistance scheme you know where you have access to counselors and mm. all that sort of but they decided that's all very reactive mm. so mm. What if they added to their employee assistance scheme the opportunity for their staff to work with a coach? Mm. Mm. Uh, and I thought, what a fabulous initiative. I was involved in helping pull together those coaches for that. But what a, a fabulous initiative. Yeah. And they had incredible take-up, uh, you know, from, from the staff for that and some fabulous feedback. And, you know, there, whilst it's, not the medical profession, you know, the equivalent were managers and others who, who took up this service, who were really challenged with with their careers, with politics, with toxic cultures, but they couldn't talk to anyone about it. Mm -hmm. So by being able to engage a coach, it was a fabulous way for them to develop new skill sets, new resilience skills, you know, look at yeah. their life. I mean, you know, it would be met with initial resistance for sure and, you know, a lot of disillusionment. Um, but in the long term, it would benefit them definitely, definitely, definitely. It was, it was interesting. I was speaking to a um, a GP partner up in North England, and they've employed life coaches for their patients. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So um, they've got about he said sixty life coaches for their oh. for their. I think they've got eight thousand patients on their um, on their practice list, and. He said that um, eighty percent of our usual attendees that come, you know, for appointments, um, don't come anymore <laughs> because they're seeing the life coaches. You know, they're talking about their financial problems, they're talking about their relationship problems, they're talking about and sort of dealing with sort of um, let's say the life psychological problems that that, that they go through. Um, they they would have otherwise seen their GP for usual ailments, blood pressure, what have you, uh, and now it's sort of yeah, it's it's freed up eighty percent of their sort of usual slots, and they're sort of seeing the more serious stuff. So, um, 
yeah, things are going in the um, the right direction, slowly, I'm sure. But yeah, I mean, certainly medical schools, that's something that uh, can be looked into. And, and I, I know that you're a founder of sort of a, a digital platform for coaching. That's mm. quite interesting as well. Yes. So the, the reason for that was that typically in a coaching engagement, you know, you're speaking to a coach uh, once a month would be pretty typical. Mm. Um, but what's happening is you're, you can spend a lot of that time then in that one session in finding out sort of what's gone on since the last session, how you're going with your goals, you know, all that sort of stuff. So the, the purpose behind it, I guess, was to leverage the sorts of things we're doing as a result of social media, which is we're messaging each other. We're actually building really strong relationships with people based on messages. So if mm. I met you and then I didn't meet you again for three months, we wouldn't have built much of a connection. Mm. But if I meet you, we, we catch up on Facebook, we send a few messages, you see a few updates, we, we actually build quite a strong relationship. Mm. And and our whole kind of psyche is changing to this. So, you know, we're building incredibly strong relationships, sometimes just online. Mm. So the idea was, what if we could take that and bring it into the coaching relationship to add even more value to the coaching relationship to create that stronger bond and engagement between the coach and the client, but also a means to better track, you know, the mm. goals and the sorts of things that we're working on. So we basically build a platform that integrates in things like instant messaging, where you would normally keep a book journal and you'd write notes, you do your journals in it. Uh, you can share those reflections directly with your coach. Mm. So you write in your journal. You don't have to share it, but you can if you want. Um, and uh, direct messaging, so you can do instant messaging and, and and other things like the concept of the life wheel mm. is in there. So you can check in on your wheel, and every time you check in as your coach, I'll see that, so I'll see your check-ins. So, But the general idea is that as you do that between coaching sessions, what you're actually doing is you're sharing some really rich data with the coach. Mm. But the coach can make sure that you are doing regular reflection and you know you you are taking some action towards your goals if you've had some but it doesn't take up a lot of the coach's time because you know you're sitting down having a coffee so you're shooting off a bit of a message to joe and a bit of a message to sue <laughs> um, you know, and we're having a little bit of mic what's called micro dialogue or micro coaching but it um it it adds immense value um so that was the sort of journey that that we went on and the reason for it um, and yeah there's been an incredible lot of learning and it is amazing how having that sort of digital platform underpinning coaching can really make such a difference to the the power I guess of the coaching relationship yeah you know I'm a fan of social media and I don't care what people say you know all this social media addiction um, I'm a fan of it and it's who I am and mm. it's a bit of a uh, well I, you know I hate when people talk about social media addiction and they're just stigmatizing it and yeah. and you know what have you there's there's so much so much benefit to it um, 
Cool. And what what's the name of the platform? Uh, Achiever. A C H I V A. Great. So I, I think there's a definite scope for medical professionals, and mm. um, was it you, you call it micro coaching? That's the one. Digital micro. Yeah, micro coaching. Great. Um, I think we're coming towards the end of our very interesting <laughs> talk. Um, thank you so much for um, uh, spending your time with us, and I know you've got so much more knowledge up there. Um, but it's an opportunity for, for for people to sort of open that door now and sort of walk through and um, embrace the dark side or the uh, you know management stroke business side of things and you know we're we're more than happy to allow people to come into our world of touchy-feely personal patient whatever you want to call it um i always ask this question at the end and you've probably heard it um so i'm going to ask you now what's the naughtiest thing you've ever done gabby I'm not sure that sharing the naughtiest thing I've ever done might be the right thing to do. <laughs> but let's say it took place in a lift. <laughs> Super duper. Absolutely excellent. I think you're the first person to actually answer that question. Everyone else has weaseled out of it. Um, so, yeah, you've, you're definitely the first person who actually answered that question the best so far we'll make sure we get it in the notes great oh, so um how can people get hold of you and what's the best way to sort of if people are interested in coaching and business side of things and management and leadership and so many other things uh probably just uh i've got a website gabbybutton.com g-a-b-b-y-b-u-t-t-o-n.com um I just jump on that and my contact details will be there and I'd be more than happy to chat to anyone. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. We've we've covered a lot of ground today and thank you everyone for listening towards the best part, which is at the end. And um, <laughs> hope to uh, speak to you soon and um, may your spirits not be surgically removed. That's for sure. <laughs> Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Surgical Spirit Podcast. For all the latest in the world of Surgical Spirit, don't forget to follow on Twitter at The Third Eye Doc and catch me on Facebook at the page The Third Eye Doctor. You can visit the website at www.thethirdeyedoctor.co.uk for more information on the work that I do. And please send us feedback and questions and suggestions for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. I've been Dr. Haida Al-Hakim and I'll see you next time.